Welcome to a new episode of Neurotech Pub. Today we'll be talking about memory. I'm joined by two scientist entrepreneurs, Nick Halper of BrainGrade and Dan Rizzuto of Nia Therapeutics. Both are developing BCI platforms for memory applications. I'm also joined by memory researchers Yuri Bujaki and Nanthia Suthana. Like many of you, I approached, and to some extent I still do approach, the concept of memory enhancement with skepticism. But the conversation today is going to be a grounded one, and I think that you're going to see there's some real science going on here that can give us reason to be cautiously optimistic about the future of memory and BCI. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, just to get started, it would be great if you could each introduce yourself and then by way of introduction, also tell us about how you first got interested in memory. Well, I'll start. (laughs) Dan Rizzuto, and I'm the CEO of Nia Therapeutics. And my background is in uh, human memory and brain-machine interfaces and clinical trial uh, design and uh, operations. And I've been doing the human memory thing, well, on and off uh, since the beginning of my career when I started out at Brandeis University as a young uh, graduate student. And I I thought that I was interested in uh, computational neuroscience. In fact, I was interested in computational neuroscience. Uh, And I worked with Larry Abbott uh, at Brandeis uh, during the the late 90s. And uh, then Eve Martyr, Uh, recommended that I train with a young professor by the name of Mike Kahana, who was pretty much unknown at that time, just starting out in his career. He was just a few years uh, older than me. Um, I think he might've been 23, 24. And uh, did a rotation with him and was really uh, just incredibly excited by the field. Um, and together we got into this field of uh, collecting intracranial recordings from neurosurgical patients while they performed memory tasks and did my dissertation on that topic, the, looking at the neurological underpinnings of human memory. And uh, it was really just a, a grand adventure, uh, understanding the, the human brain and the human memory memory system, which is so fundamental to who we are as people. So um, that's that's how I got started. Nanthia Sudhana uh, from UCLA, and I first got interested in memory as a uh, 19-year-old when I, when I took a year off from school, which technically I dropped out of school, but you know, we can say I took a year off now because I did eventually go back because I was very interested in memory. I just, I had stumbled upon some books and was reading for fun. I had always been interested in the different ways people learn and retain information. And uh, I read about, you know, cases like HM and, and individuals who have this amnesia and loss of memory and just became fascinated with trying to understand what's happening in the brain um, during this, this whole process and uh, went back to school and here I am. Uh, so my name is Nick Halper. I'm actually a, a cellular neuroscientist by training. So in, in some ways, maybe I don't, don't belong or something. <laughs> But uh, I found myself uh, as an EEG lab manager um, coming out of school and uh, really got me into electrophysiology and some of the, the challenges, but also like promise of it, um, both as a, as a research tool, but also as a product. Uh, but while I was in school and running this um, EEG lab, I had always felt this like calling 
towards Alzheimer's disease is something that I should be solving. Like it was a big attention and focus of mine um, in my uh, cellular science research, but I ended up getting a bit distracted. <laughs> um, I joined a company called BlackRock Microsystems uh, in a more of an engineering role um, because the call of neuroprosthetics is also <laughs> very exciting. And during my time at BlackRock, I, I worked my way from a more uh, engineering role into a, a kind of product and business strategy role, uh, helping to pick and choose the technologies that BlackRock commercialized. And through that, gained this kind of experience in medical devices and really wanted to um, get out and work on a medical device of my own. And uh, that's when I met Peter Schlecht, who had um, talked about uh, getting into memory as a, a therapeutic target and kind of reaching back to my cellular neuroscientist days. It was an indication I was really excited about. Uh, memory is just such a, almost the critical function of the brain. It makes us who we are um, and allows us to really do a lot of the daily tasks that we do. And so it was, um, I think a natural reaction to want to jump to it. Um, I'm Yuri Bujaki. I'm a professor of neuroscience at the New York University School of Medicine. I started out as a high school person who was interested in, uh, in radio communication. I was a radio ham. I, I built antennas and uh, receivers and transmitters. And uh, coding as a problem interested me very much and also how you send signals with high fidelity from one place to another. And when I ended up in medical school, I uh, was lucky to stumble upon a uh, person and found a person who was uh, doing extraordinary cool research on hippocampal theta oscillation. He was Professor Grashchan, who introduced me to the most important structure in the brain, which is the hippocampus and uh, its rhythms. And I came to the United States to do a postdoc fellowship and I went to Canada. I worked with another prominent hippocampal researcher by the name of Case Vanderwolf. And uh, one day, that was back then when uh, most of the recordings were mostly, most of the recordings were just local field potentials. Very few people recorded from units, but I was trying to record from units. And one day I hear this brrr, very powerful uh, pattern that we now known as the hippocampal shelf ripple. And that was a very unusual pattern. And I was looking for some function for it. And it just turned out that in the 1980s, the idea that long-term potentiation as a uh, physiological mechanism may be related to memory was prominent. And uh, the big question was whether long-term potentiation as a physiological phenomenon has anything to do with memory. And there were a couple of uh, inducing requirements, such as it has to be a very fast, powerful induction oscillation mechanism, typically 200 hertz. And there it was, this my, my ripple that had 200 hertz frequency. So all of a sudden, I realized that this may be important. And uh, this is how I started reading about, very late, about Brenda Milner and others, I learned about memory and, and things like that, mostly from the Soviet literature or Russian literature and uh, Polish literature. But uh, then I realized there is a different world. So, you know, we found our ways differently, but we end up interested in the same problems now. Thanks. To start this conversation, there are a lot of different types of memory. And so some of the people who are, who are listening now aren't that familiar with the, the different types of memory. And I was wondering, maybe Nanthia, could you 
Can you walk the audience through essentially the types of memory so that when we're discussing different types of memory, they have a sense of what we're talking about? Sure, and feel free to chip in, you know, interrupt me here, other panelists, because we're all here, all experts here. So um, uh, different types of memory, you know, what, what uh, we were just talking about, you know, the hippocampal sort of dependent memories or declarative memories, which include memories for events in your life, everyday events, like what you ate for breakfast this morning, what did you do, you know, for your birthday last year, so on. Um, and also perhaps, you know, memories for facts, uh, you know, that don't have this episodic nature and time and place that in order to form them, it's thought that, you know, hippocampus is important. And then there are other types of memory that are not dependent on the hippocampus, not these non-declarative, more implicit memories that are formed that don't, uh, you know, are able to be easily verbalized. And this can include things like learning new skills, like ride a bike, how to ride a bike, how to play the piano, uh, dance, et cetera, and are more dependent on, you know, these basal ganglia systems and striatal regions. And then there's other types of memory also that involve emotion and fear, um, you know, fear conditioning that may be involved in memory disorders like PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and, you know, other working memory, fa fast, short-term memories that we, we rehearse in our minds. Um, you know, in the old days when we we're trying to remember seven-digit phone numbers, you know, was relevant and now not so much, but for other things. Uh, and, and those are a few, I'd say, you know, but there, there are other types as well. So if I may add something to what the, you just said. Yeah. Uh, you, you can see from, from uh, Nanthea's uh, description that definitions of memory started out a long time ago. And it started as everything else in neuroscience with the interest of in, not in the brain, but in the soul originally, and then in the mind. And so the definition starts usually that can we declare something verbally? And if we can, then it's declarative memory. And then we go and so, and this is the distinction that we make today. But if you think about it for a second, this is cannot be right because uh, if we approach it from the language point of view, then why are we doing research on animals uh, who cannot speak? So the declarative memory is a good approach how the mind generates uh, reminiscence and memories, but it's not a good way to ask what the brain actually does. Uh, so over the years, of course, you know, when we realized that hippocampus has something to do with it, then we started branching out. If you look at today's literature, you will find that the classical definition that you read in every single book is hardly ever used by people like Michael Kahana, for example. <laughs> He's, uh, he deviates from this. Now, the, if you go back to the, the ancient times, then uh, typically memories were two different types. The first type was true memory. And the other one is artificial memory. Everything that we talk about today is belongs to the category of artificial memory, because these are acquired memories that we learn. But according to Christian philosophies, and even be before that, these were not true memories, because true mem memories are there. And it's a property of the soul. And the soul is forever. Therefore, it existed before we were born. So this is kind of a uh, origin of this is the platonic view of, uh, of, 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 of the mind or the soul. And then uh, it took about uh, 
almost uh, 2000 years to abandon that. They said, oh, all the, there is no soul, therefore there is only the brain. And then uh, how do we research it? So we started to put electrodes in the brain and so on, but our vocabulary as well as the mindset remain exactly the same. So recently, uh, well, I have, we have written about this a little bit and it will be out in, in the annual review of uh, psychology next year. Uh, I'd like to distinguish between two types of memories. One, what I call single utility memory, and the other one is multiple utility memory. Instead of talking about you know, the declarative and the working memory, which is working memory is also defined by the mind. You know, if you have to keep it in mind, according to William James. But you know, first you have to define what the mind is in order to understand what working memory is. And working memory is such a badly defined, physiologically unapproachable thing because it is the same thing as attention, the same thing as consciousness, and so on. So it's just a hypothetical thing. But if you look at the memory from the point of view of its consequences. Memories are only as useful as you can do something with it. That is, you use it or look at it from the point of utility. Working memory kind of thing that we are talking about are useful because we use it once. And once we use it, we want to forget it. There is no point remembering the numbers of this Zoom site forever because we use it only once. If I remember this next time, actually, it interferes with my memory. But there are others that are extremely useful because it's for the entire life of the organism. I so, was thinking of the pin for the bathroom at Starbucks. It's a good example of working memory that you don't have to remember for very long. So the interesting thing, of course, is that how come a lot of information, I don't know what information is, but I'm using the word as you do, comes into the brain and some of them will stuck and others will disappear. So the most interesting part of that is how we erase or select, how the brain selects what should stay and what is not necessary to be there for a long time. And the reason why the working memory issue is not so useful, because working memory, if it, if it is used even in the traditional way, people call working memory something that happens for five seconds, five, 50 seconds, five minutes. But where I park my car is a classical other kind of example. It's also a single utility thing, but it can last for two days or even longer. So time is not a good way of separating different kinds of memories, but it's always the outcome that is uh, something we have to keep in mind. So this is a long answer to your short question. Can I ask, now that we've elaborated on a lot of different types of memories and um... Is there someone who could talk a little bit about the localization of memory? And I think there's a lot of thinking that different types of memory are localized to different types of structures. And, and could someone tell us the contemporary viewpoint on that? Well, I can, I can react to that and say, you know, where do you get your information from? Well, one way of doing it is open up a big book, let's say Kendall's uh, book and say, oh, well, what kind of memories do we have? Over the years, memory became almost synonymous with plasticity. And plasticity can be defined as a change of synaptic strength. But synaptic strength change is used for many, many, many things. Everything that happens in the brain is synaptic strength change. So there are as many memories, if you want, as many synapses or as many circuits. So there is 
muscle memory or kinetic memory, or you can call it a skill memory. Uh, and they said, oh, where is it? Well, you put it in one box. It said the motor system. Uh, what about uh, something else that uh, uh, upsets my or changes my heart rate? Oh, we can call it emotional memories. Oh, where are the emotional memories? Oh, of course, the box is the, hip is the amygdala. And where are those things that we declare it, you know, verbally? I said, oh, let's think about it. maybe prefrontal cortex, maybe hippocampus, or the interaction between the two, and so on. So this is the approach. We approach everything not from the brain point of view, but from the outside world point of view. And we try to do the taxonomy without knowing how to ground these words that we are using. So perhaps it's time. Maybe this is a good forum to start. <laughs> how do we reverse it and start with brain mechanisms and say, what is, what is the memory that in 2021, we all agree that we have to research. And do we have to have 50 different types of categories or, or the 12 types that is in Larry Squire's book? Or we say that mm -hmm, anything that is, I'll be happy with the idea that anything that can change is memory. I, I, I like that approach, uh, Yuri. And I, I wonder, uh, I would also add, and I wonder how you would react, that um, it should be grounded not only in how the brain operates, but a deep understanding of behavior, and that our, our goal is to link brain and behavior. And I, I agree that the vocabulary can be misleading, and we shouldn't you know, get too caught up in the labels, but there are some really basic fundamental principles of memory that any brain-based explanation of memory should be able to explain. And I'm thinking of some principles of basic findings in the asso human associative memory literature, such as the conditional response probability, where you're more likely to recall items that are nearby in context, be that temporal context or semantic context or spatial context, but there's a contiguity effect whereby if you let somebody recall in free uh, association order, they're more likely to recall events that are close in time, close in space, or close in semantic you know, space. Uh, and that's a fundamental property of human memory that the brain-based approach should be able to explain. Yeah, I'll also add back to this question of localization, you know, having just finished teaching undergrads and this topic precisely, it's, it's a real challenge because traditionally when I went to college and learned about memory, multiple memory systems and what we um, alluded to in Kendall's book, right, there are specific regions that are responsible for these um, functions in memory, which is kind of a narrow sort of viewpoint. And, and modernized now contemporary views, I think would suggest that it's multiple areas, networks, you know, regions can be involved you know, in complex ways in these different uh, memory systems. So it's, it's a challenge to one hand, try to you know, teach students about these systems and the regions that are supported, um, but also provide them with a sense of the complexity of you know, multiple regions interacting, like you said, prefrontal and hippocampal areas and you know, getting away from this one site, one role kind of viewpoint that's been the tradition for decades. In the very beginning, you mentioned HM, and I mean, that formed a lot of people's thoughts about localization of memory. Could someone briefly 
uh, tell us the story of HM and, and, and how that informed people's thinking, rightly or wrongly, about the function of the hippocampus? Okay, I can, I can just a uh, HM, Henry Molaison, who we know now, his name, given he has passed away in the last few years and um, was studied for many, many decades, you know, by Brenda Milner and uh, Larry Squire and others. And, um, you know, really, uh, so I guess the case was that, you know, it's epilepsy patient who has intractable epilepsy. So is, you know, having multiple seizures that are not reacting to, to medication or standard forms of treatment. And so he underwent surgery uh, to remove the medial temporal lobes bilaterally. At that time, you know, there was no real um, risk to removing those areas. At least we didn't know what would happen behaviorally or cognitively. And so when uh, he had the surgery, his seizures did what were reduced, his epilepsy was improved, but unfortunately he was unable to form these new memories for events in his life. And he also lost some recent memories from his past, uh, but old, old memories were still there and intact. And so it led to this view that you know, the medial temporal lobe and maybe somewhat the hippocampus, although his resection was quite large, uh, not limited to the hippocampus, um, is, is really required to form these memories, these declarative memories for events in, one, in one's life. And, you know, his brain was studied um, and it was also realized that he had, you know, some tissues still intact, especially posterior regions. But, you know, there are a lot of viewpoints now in terms of what regions in the medial temporal lobe are really important and critical um, for, for this type of memory function that we're discussing, which is you know, episodic like memories for events. So this, this seems like a very interesting case and they said, oh, memory is now grounded because we found a structure in the brain whose removal induces problems. And the interesting part to me and probably for many others is that how much HM was misinterpreted. Again, open up any book and it will say basically that that's a nice situation because HM remembered everything or a lot of things before his surgery, but didn't learn anything new. The truth is that is absolutely incorrect because HM could never ever recall an episode from his previous life. Now, Dad uh, already mentioned about time and space and you know we are going back to Anvil Tulvin who really who coined the term episodic memory and the, the, the way it has been simplified what he said over the years he said what happens to me where and when or that was even more simplified what happened where and when and of course these are the animal researchers who used this kind of definition but when I say what is the distinction between uh, the, these two sentences. First World War started in Sarajevo, and I can give you a date in 1917, or the other one is that the World Trade Center was bombed on September 11, 2001. Now, both statements have one thing in common, where, when, and what. But none of us actually have any personal experience from the First World War because we were not born yet. But we, many of us do have a personal involvement in 9-11. So this brings us back to the key part of uh, Tulsing's definition, what he calls autonoetic. That is, I am part of it. This is my memory. This is something that I experienced. So 
H.M. could never narrate. He could never recall a birthday party event or a fight with his friends and so on. He got what we call a combination of semantic information. And of course, this makes life so, so difficult if this is the definition that we live with for people like me who is working with mice and rats because there is no autonomic aspect of it. But if you look at from the evolutionary point of view, you said, what is the main distinction here? Is it the conscious part of it? Or I say, no, this is mine. I am different than somebody else. So the definition of me being a different aspect from everything else, this is, this is the part that continues throughout evolution. Animals distinguish themselves from everything else. And, and from this point of view, you can approach memory much better than from the definition of, uh, of what happens to me, where and when, and including the to me aspect and the autonoetic aspect. In other words, the correction I made is without the hippocampus, you cannot put together a sequence of events, whether it was new or it's old, you are not capable of doing that. I would agree, and I'd, I'd build on that. I think one of the, the fundamental misunderstandings of the HM uh, work was that mainly in the popular literature and uh, in the layman's understanding of memory is that hippocampus is somehow the be-all, end-all of memory. Um, and it's true, if you lesion the hippocampus, you have profound memory deficits, uh, but these are uh, specific to um, being able to uh, recollect into an episodic form, this uh, autonoetic uh, uh, narrative. Um, but there's still other forms of memory. Uh, and uh, it, I would say that in my view, the hippocampus is the glue that binds different aspects of memory together into a personal narrative. Uh, but it is not just where all memories are stored. Um, so this is, uh, you know, there. A, a particular memory may include sights that activate visual cortex, uh, smells that uh, activate, you know, and, and sounds that activate the auditory cortex. Uh, and the hippocampus is that glue that binds it all together into a single episode of your life that allows you to re-experience that episode. With large lesions, you can disrupt that ability to reassemble that original memory, even though the particular aspects of memory may be very much alive in visual cortex, auditory cortex, etc. I think this would be an interesting time to bring in a question we had from one of our previous guests, Matt Kaufman, who's at the University of Chicago. He's a motor researcher. We asked him if he had any questions about memory, and he had this question. The thing that has always really baffled me about making new memories is you know, how do you get a network to recapitulate its, its activation, right? And so people have worried about how do you build a, something that looks like the hippocampus that lets you do the synaptic plasticity, let's say, for sake of argument, that um, you activate it once and it captures that activation and it will reactivate itself that way in the future. But we know that this activation spreads out to cortex and to other parts of the brain, right? Where when you have a memory, you get reactivation all over the brain that is recapitulating some of the sensory stimulus. 
but the plasticity isn't occurring in cortex, at least not immediately, right? But you can retrieve an, a memory immediately. So how do you build a system such that you don't just have some somewhere that can recapitulate its activity? How do you make it so that it can do that? And then it can recapitulate the activity that drove it to have that activity that's distributed across the brain. This is, this is something I've, I've yet to see a, a theory that, at least that I understood, that explained it. Let me give it a try. So if you go by the definition that episodic memory is what happens where and when, and forget the, the me for the moment, then that was a extraordinary moment in neuroscience because having accepted the definition, neuroscience had a roadmap how to figure out the neurophysiology or neuroscience of memory. All you have to figure out is where is the what stored in the brain? Where is the when stored in the brain? And where is the where stored in the brain? And this is exactly what happened. He said, oh, we found the, the where because the hippocampus is the spatial device. And many laboratories looked at it and a Nobel Prize was given for that. Recently, time also converged into the hippocampus and said, okay, well, time is, uh, is there are time cells in the hippocampus. And then we can, figure out from uh, various patterns, not only where the animal is, but where the animal is heading, whether the right or left hand, uh, left uh, part of the T maze or radial maze. So hooray, we have got the internal hippocampal system where the where, what, and when converges. And this is an extraordinary simplification in terms of the computation that was just uh, asked about, because instead of every single episode that we had in our lifetime, now we have to just separately store in one box the what, another box the where, and the third box the, 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 the when. And then when we have to recapitulate the memory, we multiply the marginals, and there we go, we've got the three aspects of the memory and we have it. Now, I have extensively have written about these problems that there is no such a thing as where, and there's no such a thing as when in the brain, Time is not made by the brain. Time is not sensed by the brain. There are sequences that are present. So if you throw out the, the, the time and space as such, then how do you make the simplification? One possible approach is that indeed you can conceive the hippocampus as a uh, librarian, or you can call it a search engine whose who is like a search engine or like a librarian, it doesn't have a lot of knowledge, but it has the necessary sufficient knowledge to point in the, in the neocortex where the information is residing, such as in books in the library. So the fundamental uh, mechanism of the hippocampus is to generate these sequences. And the reason why it can do it so effectively or more effectively than any other structure is because the hippocampus is a single giant cortical module. Unlike the neocortex, which is a modular system that, that can replicate many, many functions uh, pretty similarly, hippocampus just grows. And then it keeps connections with every part of it. If you are looking for a big random graph in the, hippocampus, uh, in the brain, then the hippocampus is your best bet. So we can go from any neuron to any other neurons in the hippocampus in just two steps. And that takes about 100 milliseconds, which is the time of a hippocampal theta cycle. So the hippocampus generates the sequences 
and it is capable of, of generating those sequences in a way that can be tied to learning and is capable of pointing to the relevant sources in the brain, uh, in, the, in, the, in the neocortex. So we have, we have enormous savings because you don't have to code and decode as well as store all the memories or all the, the events that happen to you. All you have to remember is the semantic patterns and how these semantic patterns can be tied together by something and the something is the hippocampus. In that way, could you kind of think about the hippocampus as some sort of endogenous amplifier effectively that sits there and replays circuits until you get that plasticity in a more general sense spread throughout the brain so that you create these associations between these kind of semantic events? Yeah, that's a nice metaphor. So it's, it's a sequential amplifier. You know, it's sure. What do we know right now about the function of the hippocampal circuits? And, and what I mean by that is, suppose that you had the ability to read and write from 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 neurons, um, what could you decode? What do we think we could decode based on our understanding today? What do we think we could um, encode? Is there a mechanistic understanding of those circuits right now? Or where, where are we? This is through direct hippocampal access? Yeah. So you can't cheat and uh, stimulate sensory neurons going into hippocampus or anything like that? <laughs> nope. So I, I don't want to talk too much, but I have ideas here. Namely that you know, if you, to answer the question the way you ask is very difficult because it already presupposes that we shovel information into the brain. And the brain is there to absorb knowledge. And again, this is a funny way of thinking about it because mm -hmm. this is what's called the tabula rasa idea that the brain is there as a, as a blank slate and we fill it up with information. And from this perspective, it's very difficult to answer your question. Because you think of the hippocampus more as this kind of lookup table that, that points to information in other areas. And so you feel without the understanding of the cortical areas and what's being encoded in the cortical areas, the, the hippocampus would be a sort of meaningless graph. Is that, is that your position? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So what, what you can say instead that, aha, uh -huh, the hippocampus is you know, part of the brain is already there and it can generate enormous amount of sequences. Even a rat hippocampus can generate many, many sequences, but the richness of the hippocampus is not in the hippocampus, but it's in the reader. Yeah. The same sequence can be read out by five different ways. And this is why the neocortex is so enormous, much bigger in the human than in the, to the rodent, because the job of the neocortex is to observe and suck out that information that exists there. So instead of thinking that how we generate sequences, you can say that the fundamental goal of the brain or the fundamental task as the brain is maintain its own dynamic. And whenever we learn something or not, it doesn't change the dynamic. The dynamic should stay and does stay pretty much the same. So learning is not making the brain or hippocampus much more complicated, but as a kind of a lookup table, as you said, and then we can choose any of these lookup sequences and link it to something interesting that happened out there. 
So learning to me is more like a magic process rather than a building from brick by brick, a new house. Something interesting. So I think, uh, you know, what this makes me think of is the difficulty of writing a new memory into the brain, which might have been, you know, I think it's it, certainly in the popular uh, uh, psyche right now that, it, you know, uh, people who are doing these, building these uh, memory prosthetics are able to write memories into the brain. Uh, and I think Yuri's pointing out the, the difficulties of doing that, at least from a hippocampal perspective, you might need, uh, you know, uh, electrodes and sensory cortex uh, in order to, to do this. But there is an element, uh, you know, something, re a fundamental process of the hippocampus is the theta rhythm. And this is thought to underlie associative information processing, not only in the brain, but also uh, and with the, uh, you know, not only in the hippocampus, but also in the larger brain networks and the interactions between hippocampus and neocortex. And it, it could provide a kind of uh, a physiological mechanism uh, that supports distributed cellular activity, synchronized activity, uh, and uh, allows a communication channel between neocortex and hippocampus. And so one possibility, uh, and it doesn't require tens of thousands of microelectrodes, you know, maybe perhaps just a few macroelectrodes, but one possibility, very intriguing, is to magnify learning by modulating these fundamental mechanisms, such as the, the theta rhythm in the hippocampus and elsewhere. Um, getting at rather than, you know, a, a more specific detail of a memory, rather than, rather than you know, writing in details of a memory, but rather amplifying the learning process itself. I'd like to get from each of you a prediction into the future. And I'm going to make Yuri go last because he's too influential and I think he, he tilts the group. <laughs> and um, let's, let's look forward in the future. What is the date where there's a 50% likelihood that the following is possible? So I, I'm asking you to look forward to a time where you think, yeah, you know, June 2029, 20, that, I think there's a 50% likelihood this would be possible. When do you think there's a 50% likelihood that it would be possible to decode a volitionally recalled episodic memory based on a BCI readout? Where someone recalls a birthday party and you're recording from their brain and you reconstruct the birthday party and you can say, you know, what kind of cake they had. How far away do we think we are? When's the date when there's, it's 50% likelihood, likely that that's possible. So without prior knowledge, right? Not being able to say, I've looked at this person's brain when they've thought about this birthday party before, and I'm going to tell you whether they're thinking about that same birthday party again. No, you, can I'm build, saying, you, you can have a decoding model. You can have some okay. training with them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It, in that case, I think it, it actually, it would not be so far away. If there's only two training items, then it's we yeah. can do it right now. <laughs> Thinking about specific birthday party memory, and I can record from anywhere in the brain, and I'm looking at these like uh, sensory replays and hippocampal patterns. No, 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 no. I'm not asking you. I'm not asking you to know. I, I'm saying like 
like sort of like open set um, speech decoding, you know, where you train on phonemes and then there's like, and then the person can say anything they want in the same way you could build on a, you could build on a, let's say a set of memories, but you ask them to recall a memory that they, that's never been trained before. Uh, being a little more specific, no cheating in other words. <laughs> mm. In humans. <laughs> yeah, in humans. Yeah. Uh, let's go with uh, 2045. Okay. okay. <laughs> About okay. 25 Hi. years. Oh yeah. my goodness. I'm more of an optimist, I think. I mean, this is a hard, impossible question to answer because I think it so much relies on the technology. <laughs> You know, we, we just don't have the technology, I think, to, to access, you know, the neurons or the signals that would probably be needed to do this, but you may disagree other panelists. But um, I think, you know, there's a lot of effort right now into either improving the technology or just getting it to humans where it can be, you know, safe and usable in humans. And so if that happens all of a sudden out of nowhere, then we could get there sooner, I think, maybe. What's your 50% date? Uh, what are we, 2021? So maybe cut that in half, 25 years in half. <laughs> okay. 2032. <laughs> okay. Dan, I mean, Dan yeah. what do you think? Uh, yeah, I'm probably uh, closer to Nick here. Uh, you know, yeah, if we assume we have a uh, incredibly powerful technology today, that would certainly accelerate things, but we don't. And we know the regulatory pathways to developing such novel technologies are long, they're arduous, uh, they require significant investment. Uh, and uh, these, you know, we really do proceed at a more um, uh, you know, at a, at a slower pace than we would like. So, um, yeah, I think 20, 25 years sounds uh, okay. realistic here. It's definitely more realistic. I'm going for the all of a sudden something miraculous happens here. <laughs> but but uh, our minds might change as we see an acceleration of this technology. I mean, uh, companies like Dan's and ours are going to be getting products into the brains of so many more people now and looking at memory systems chronically that I think ask this question again in five years. Okay, Yuri, <laughs> what do you think? I think we should uh, invite Ray Kurzweil. <laughs> he would give you a date and it would be January 17 of uh, a particular year. <laughs> but Kurzweil, like all other visionaries and many fortune tellers, always make a mistake, which is they give a date. And those dates are never, ever met. I don't... I, I, just for a second, I, I brought something from my door. But if you send us later, if you send us a, a copy of it, we'll put it, it on I, the I podcast. I call it Henry Scale. This is Henry Markram's, uh, you know, the Human Brain Project. Yeah. And it says, we will understand a single neuron in 2005, the neocortical column in 2008, complete red brain 2014, which we have passed, Mm -hmm. And complete, complete human brain reconstruction is 2023. Now, a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the usual thinking of humans is that things are exponential. And uh, you would like to say, oh, we, we had a hard time, but now we have the tool set, we have this one. From now on, it's a free <laughs> ride, and then we will get there soon. In reality, when you think how much we progress since HM, or I would put it in a more historical concept. 
what do you think? Who was the person who described episodic memory in context or in connection with space and time? When was that? Well, we, we know Enver Tulvig, of course, yeah. but somebody before Enver well, probably already talked about space and time and, and, and memory. I don't know, were you gonna tell us? <laughs> yes, uh, so his name, that's the first recorded name is Simonides from an island in, 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 in Greece 2000 years ago. Here's a wonderful book that you would like to read, mm. The Art of Memory. And when you will read it, you will be surprised how much thinking has been done before William James, before the, the British empiricist, and how much have been repeated and how much we are repeating today. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to have a timeline, but I, I, I guarantee you that within 100 years, we will not be there to say we have a device that can work almost like episodic memory in a human. I know it sounds pessimistic, but I bet you 25 cents that, uh, <laughs> that I'm 50% right. 25 cents. <laughs> <laughs> 25 cents in 100 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another interesting question is when might we actually see a commercial memory prosthetic? And I think that is much more close than being able to read out a, yeah, true, true, you're, you're absolutely right. And well, let's say an implantable embedded memory prosthetic. And it's a different simple problem, because if I can have it this in my glass and I can cheat anytime when you say, oh, who was Simon Ines? You know, in two seconds, with the help of my externalized memory, I can outbeat everybody who doesn't have the device. Right. And yet, an Alzheimer's patient... That's all semantic. That's semantic. Right, exactly. That's right. And um, I think and this is what we have to strive for as you guys as technologists. I think the best way to proceed is always the path of least resistance and perhaps the biggest the bank. And the biggest bank is in semantics rather than uh, trying to do some spooky stuff such as, uh, you know, my own no autonoetic recall that's a difficult thing because every single time i recall my birthday i add something to it from the present time you know this is the reconsolidation problem the the nothing is so unreliable as memories are i have a question from mark schnitzer um i asserted to mark that there was already some uh, clinical evidence that neuromodulation can affect recall and and this is what he asked me well you mentioned the clinical evidence that it a memory prosthetic could could work and be successful. I would I would just be keen to hear more about that evidence. Yeah, I think the evidence is really clear. This is the the really exciting thing that about this field is that we already have demonstrated proof of concept in human subjects that we can improve their memory. And, you know, it's important to clarify the details. We've improved, for instance, our laboratory at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, which is the, the technology that my company, Nia Therapeutics, is, is, is based upon. We've demonstrated that we can improve verbal recall performance. Uh, so people are neurosurgical patients who participate in our studies are able to recall better with 
stimulation of lateral temporal cortex than they can without stimulation of lateral temporal cortex. And these are very rigorously controlled clinical studies, sham controlled, blinded, randomized studies. And this is, you know, I think at this point we've We've replicated this and published it in top tier journals pretty extensively at this point. So um, at this point, we're just refining and extending it. Now we're going beyond neurosurgical patients. Now we're in the process. We just published this to um, MedArchive, not yet in a journal. It's being submitted. But we've now extended these results to neurosurgical patients with a history of traumatic brain injury. We're able to improve verbal memory, verbal recall performance in patients with traumatic brain injury and compared to their own sham-controlled, randomized performance. So And where are you stimulating? Where are you stimulating? Yeah, so this is where there's a lot of variety in approaches uh, in the field right now, both in terms of the types of signals. So many people are going for what's called closed loop neurostimulation, where they're um, identifying biomarkers in the brain that are indicative of particular uh, memory states and stimulating based on those control signals. Um, and uh, so that's one type of uh, you know, difference amongst uh, approaches in the field. And the other is in targets of stimulation. Where are you stimulating to improve memory? Our team, um, we came in, we were funded by DARPA in 2014 uh, to the tune of about $24 million to undertake a pretty massive study of neurosurgical patients and uh, brain stimulation and memory. And we didn't know uh, where the ideal location or target for stimulating to improve memory was going to be. Um, You know, hippocampus seemed like it would be a a good bet, uh, given all the the wealth of um, literature that uh, connects hippocampus to uh, human uh, memory. And we did stimulate hippocampus, and there were some, you know, uh, some modest results there, some um, you know, some not so great, but then we, by chance, we happened upon lateral temporal cortex and we found a very reliable effect. So we're talking um, lateral, just over your left ear, typically. Um, and we found that we were able to improve recall performance uh, between 15 to 20% and in some patients, up to 40%. That is, patients were recalling, on average, 20% more words on a given uh, list. We, we use list learning to gauge their if, memory if performance. I were, if I were to pick up the Candel book, what would it tell me that uh, lateral temporal cortex is doing? I'm not sure what Candel would say. Uh, Ojiman would say uh, that it's involved in verbal memory. He's done extensive studies of recordings from lateral temporal cortex while subjects back in the 80s and 90s, um, uh, maybe 90s, 2000s, uh, from, again, neurosurgical patients, single unit studies, local field studies in lateral temporal cortex showing that this area modulates during verbal memory tasks. Um, MRI studies also indicate that there's a a function of verbal language associated uh, with this area of the brain. Is anyone else surprised that, I mean, it works. I mean, the the study is there, but is, 
is anyone else kind of surprised that it works? But do we have a mental model for what, what happens mechanistically when you stimulate that cortical area? So I, I would put my money on hippocampus sharp wave ripples because we understand it. And, uh, you know, last year we had a paper, you know, I advertise also our stuff in, in science where we prolonged optogenetically the duration of the ripples and we improved memory by the same ballpark figure, 20, 30%. Uh, in a simple task, of course, where is the, the choices between left and right? And, and that's a very simple situation. And I think most of the, the problems are with these memory enhancement problems that they are not real world situations and uh, the choices are limited. Uh, but if you, if, you, if, if you say, what, where should I stimulate in the brain in order that I will remember every part of our conversation today, or even more demanding, I would say that I would recall the key aspects, the most important aspects of this conversation, rather than all the details that are not necessary. And then it's a difficulty. And what, uh, what Dan didn't mention is that, you know, I've seen 20 posters uh, from Michael from under the DARPA and all the other posters says negative, 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 negative. And then there was a hotspot that happened to work. And uh, that's what you're asking is that uh, what is so special about that hotspot? And the explanation would be maybe they can trigger something that others cannot. You know, triggering hippocampal sharpness is a difficult thing, but you can do it with, with up and down states. Other people, again, in rodents have shown that if you couple, this is uh, my, my, my ex-postdoc, that if you stimulate or couple the hippocampus sharpness, the neocortical up and down states, you can also improve memory. And there are many of these things, but again, all of these are very simple situations. And in that case, there are hotspots, but almost doesn't matter where you stimulate. Um, maybe you happen to stimulate in, a, in an intersection of roads, which is most effective, such as this, in, in case of Parkinsonian uh, stimulation, the, you know, the, the subthalamic nucleus that has uh, multiple projections from multiple motor areas. I think that's that's right. I mean, we don't think that lateral temporal cortex is the uh, spot for verbal memory in the brain. And in fact, what we see is that by stimulating again at this spot in the brain, lateral temporal, and at the right time, which is during these poor predicted memory states, you can change the larger brain dynamic. So you actually see a global or somewhat global change in the state of the brain network from a poor memory state as defined by our multivariate classifiers into a good memory state. And we, you know, we published this in Nature Communications in 2018. Uh, so there's a localized stimulation that translates into a more of a global state change in the brain through functional connectivity. And we, you know, we think the effect is partly reliant upon connection with hippocampus. And we have additional data saying, suggesting that the degree to which we're near white matter in lateral temporal cortex, and that white matter is connected to hippocampus uh, predicts the effectiveness of our therapy. To add on to that and thinking about the memory network is a, a, is a network indeed. I mean, on the subject of phase amplitude coupling, 
if you think about the hippocampus as a coordinator of like long range activity and synchronization between these memory areas, it's impossible to say I'm going to affect memory or improve memory in a clinical way without really looking at that whole network. And if you can find a hotspot like lateral temporal cortex that affects that whole network, then great. But I think this is going to be um, basically disease dependent. And it, from this, we can take a lesson from pharmaceuticals, right? We can look and say, okay, if I want to make a clinically uh, relevant memory prosthetic or memory implant, I need to first look at what's going wrong, right? I need to understand how the brain's functioning when it's going right. And I need to look at how that deviates or when it's going wrong. And if I can restore that state, then I can probably restore function. And that's what we see, right? When we take these, there's, there's a whole bunch of evidence, whether it's invasive intracranial stuff that came from Penn, um, or whether it's even non-invasive stuff uh, done by Hanselmeyer or others, what you see is that networked coordination of activity and restoring that network activity um, at those multiple sites is what is critical to restoring function. I think there's a lot of evidence there, uh, really strong evidence in humans to support that. I'll add uh, just that from what I'm hearing and what the state of the field is and how much it's changed in the last 10 years, it seems that there are multiple ways to modulate memory, multiple regions, multiple methods in terms of changing the physiology. And a lot of it is, is um, kind of going in an accelerated way before the science maybe has a chance to fully catch up in terms of what's really going on. And so I think, you know, we have an opportunity here to, uh, you know, go in parallel and, uh, you know, take advantage of these findings where we can modulate memory and pursue them, perhaps in clinical settings, but also in parallel, perhaps in the same uh, opportunities, you know, try to understand what's really going on. Is it sharp wave ripples? Is it, you know, theta gamma coupling? Is it, um, you know, consolidation, retrieval, encoding? What, what, what is going on that's allowing this electrical signal to modulate the circuit and the network? I think you bring up a good point there, Nantia, which is that it's actually relatively common that clinical products precede mechanistic understanding of the exact target or basically disease that they're, they're targeting. And so it, it's often the case that we end up developing something that is functionally useful as a clinical device, for example, without having the really kind of like nitty gritty evidence of like, this is the individual neural fire firings that are like coordinating this. And this is how this device works. I mean, we're only now just figuring out how deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's works and it's been around for 50 years. And so I, 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 I support that point of kind of pursuing these activities in parallels of society. And I think this is also what's uh, exciting about the new crop of neural devices that are being built uh, is that they have, it, it's all about closed loop. It's all about neural sensing. Uh, and the, you know, this is going to open up whole new um, avenues for human research, clinical studies. Uh, and it will also accelerate the development of technologies. If you can imagine how fast uh, DBS for Parkinson's would have evolved if they had built in sensing from the very beginning, as opposed to waiting until 2021 to actually release a commercial device for sensing and park DBS for Parkinson's. Um, it, it, yeah, I, I think we're going to see a, a shift and an acceleration in yeah. the technology development. And I guess that's why I was so optimistic with my very unrealistic timeline is because a shift is happening in the, you know, clinical treatment opportunistic, you know, science investigation world where we're going to have 
maybe 100,000 patients walking around with sensing devices, right, in their brain, um, and then several thousand epilepsy patients with hippocampal devices that can record sharp wave ripples, right? We're, we're close to that being a reality here. And so the scientists, I think, could, could do, do a lot with that kind of information. Just imagine that during sleep, during walking around, navigating, during recalling episodic details of an event that happened earlier in the day, you know, that's why it's so exciting. And I'm, you know, very optimistic about the next 10 years, albeit very, you know, unrealistic timeline for what we were discussing earlier. Certainly the new thing is to take into consideration that the brainstem matters. Yeah. Uh, brainstem matters at a longer scale, such as uh, sleep-waking. For example, mm -hmm. uh, a drug taken at night or taken in the morning can have an opposite effect. You know, if, you, if you remember all the young born studies that you take scopolamine in the, in, during the day, that's bad. But if you take scopolamine during the night, actually it increases the probability of uh, sharp wave ripples and the memory improves. Uh, on the shorter scale, I think what we should uh, remember or, or think about it, that what is being recalled is some kind of memory. And the memory is, you can say, it's information. Now, information is, requires a code or a cipher, which is an agreement between the sender and the receiver. And, and in every single communication system, these, the information is sending packages. It has to be packed into smaller chunks, just like in the Morse code. If this conversation that we are having today would be just one long word, there would be no way to understand anything. And the reason why, despite my, my, my accent, you understand me is because your brain has the same rhythm as my brain and the segmentation is pretty much the same. So in, in communication system, you, pack the, you package the, the, the information in shorter chunks and you can call it you know, part of the neural syntax. And in the brain, if you are looking for any rule that guides the neural syntax, that's the system of the rhythms. And the reason why it is such a, a potentially useful uh, method is because every known brain rhythm is based on inhibition. So inhibition is a natural full stop in a sentence. It's a natural coma. It's a natural uh, uh, separator. And then you have shorter messages and longer messages and, and, and then we have a hierarchical system that is, is, is made for all this. Now, restoring all those complicated things that we are dreaming about is difficult, but assisting and making this, the, 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 the gadgets good enough to improve memory is indeed, I agree with everybody, that's not so far away because if you can just make this packaging artificially better, then that not inevitably, but hopefully it will uh, help, especially in th with those brains, they don't have this ability because they lost it, such as in epileptic patients. What do we think is the most, some of the most promising work going on right now that would suggest new approaches for memory prosthetics or enhancing memory or uh, helping people with damaged memory systems? Are there particular threads of research that you're looking at right now and you, you feel very promising? Animals or humans? Either. Well, in animals, I, I do see a, 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 a program, but that requires that you go inside the brain and deep. In humans, that's a little bit more complicated if you would like to stick 
with the existing uh, non-invasive methods. Uh, but I, I think in humans, what is what I hear back from you is probably very similar to what we've been thinking about is that the brain doesn't let information in all the time. It is not like a Shannonian system where the information is sent and the receiver automatically just absorbs everything. It's the opposite. It's always the receiver who calls up the sender and says, send it to me now. So we are, the brain is in charge and monitoring that state in the brain and delivering the messages at the right time is uh, something that devices can do reasonably well. So I, I, I know that you know, different phases of alpha oscillations I'll get for that. I know that certain levels of vigilance in certain areas are resistant to letting information. So why don't we wait or why don't we just wait? That's one way of doing it. And the second one is more complicated, of course, is that to modify it. But the, the, is there any hope, for example, that we can make the, the brain a continuous device that irrespective of its vigilance uh, fluctuation, it will be just like a computer that absorbs information independent of its own state. Uh, that's not probably something that is too hopeful, but to exploit the, the knowledge that we know the times and when, when uh, the brain is more sensitive, that's a different story. Perhaps not controlling the state of the brain. I would agree with you. It's going to be very difficult to treat the brain like a computer and control its state. But I, I think nudges are within our current technical abilities right now, where you can nudge the brain. And that can, that can have meaningful results, I hope. Yeah, nudge, but also predict when is, like you mentioned earlier, when's a good time? Is, exactly. it the phase, is it the phase of an ongoing oscillation? Is it during a particular phase of sleep or sharp wave ripple, et cetera? So that's one approach. And then the second piece of the puzzle you need is how, what's the language? How are you going to nudge, right? Is it just gonna be blasting it with this crazy amount of global stimulation or is it gonna be focused? Is it gonna be hitting a network of white matter, uh, which our results also suggest that that's important. Is it going to have a pattern to it? Is it gonna be you know, a high frequency modulated, you know, low frequency pattern that could induce more plasticity, et cetera, et cetera. I think as we learn more about this, we can be smarter in terms of how we're communicating and nudging the brain, as you say, and also, I'm very excited about deep learning and machine learning methods that are uh, being used on these big data sets that hopefully we can gather in the memory field such that we can learn you know, new, new information in terms of these signals that are communicating back to us and what they mean. And so in that way, find out better what, uh, you know, how, to, how to nudge or how to communicate back. Completely agree. And you know, that's, that's the big trend that I see the whole field is riding on right now, which is uh, data science and um, you know these very large data sets uh, and using machine learning and artificial neural networks to mine these massive data sets and identify signals and biomarkers that can be uh, useful for guiding our nudges. So who decides uh, when to nudge? The AI. Who decides? <laughs> But who trains the AI? <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm yeah, so are we. <laughs> so in, in our approach, we know, you know, I, I can tell you when a patient, in fact, I don't need to tell you, the patient 
knows or the patient reports when they're in a good memory state, when they're in a bad memory state. So if you give a patient 12 items, if they remember six of those items, uh, by uh, definition, they were in a good memory state when, for the items that were ultimately recalled, and they were in a poor memory state for the items that were ultimately forgotten or not recalled. So there's a patient self-report in identifying their own brain states. Uh, and that's the, you know, the behavioral signal that we use to train our algorithms that then give the nudges. So this is exactly what I'm, I'm, I'm interrogating. So we discussed a, a few minutes ago that it is a mystery how my brain absorbs something and reject other things. And it's a, a selection process, you know, when I, when I, I see in a cocktail party uh, through the photons uh, impinging upon my retina that somebody's kissing somebody else, that's not a big deal. But if it happens to be my wife, all of a sudden, you know, my entire brain lights up and, and then it goes on and on and on, on forever. So, because this is me. Now, when you are reading out my brain's uh, brain state and you are delivering the stuff that you want to be delivered into my brain, is very different from the way how my brain selects my, my outside world. And, and, and this is the, 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 the key thing to think about is that, is there a way you just switch on my brain or your brain and said, okay, in the next half an hour, I will be on 100% absorption <laughs> uh, mode and I will learn everything, which is not possible. But, but then you can take the windows, but then during those windows, somebody should deliver messages. And who, who decides about those things. I think this is where responsive neurostimulation comes in handy, right? You can look at endogenous signals in the brain and say, I'm going to nudge these further into the direction they're already going, for example, or do a minute correction to these. And so you're relying, I mean, by the time you're at hippocampus, I'm treating this like it's sequentially arriving here. By the time you're at hippocampus, you're, you're in a really high order uh, cognitive state. Like there's high order information. And if you can simply take the brain's natural processes and upregulate them, for example, I think that answers that problem itself in some ways. I would echo that or amplify it and, and say, you know, we're not saying that this device, this hypothetical device, is going to control your attentional process or control your emotional process. I mean, what we're saying is it may amplify the learning process. Uh, and you still have the ability to completely focus your attention on whatever is most salient to you. Um, we're not going, to, you know, we're not going to be able to increase the learning of a completely random event that you have no interest in. But, and this comes back to, you know, this idea of control of a brain state versus a nudge. But there's another fact, which is the variability that you're, you're pointing out, the variability puzzle in human memory. Uh, human memory function is very variable from moment to moment and also from person to person. But impressively, within a given person, it's incredibly variable from moment to moment. And it's always been a mystery as to what causes this variability. And my scientific co-founder at Penn uh, did a massive study of 500 uh, uh, list learning 
experiments with uh, individual healthy subjects and found that it wasn't the memorability, it wasn't exogenous effects like the memorability of a given item um, uh, that drove uh, the, the the largest that was the largest source of variance, but it was endogenous. It was list to list variability. That is, there's something endogenous in the person um, that varies on a uh, pretty slow timescale from list to list that drives the performance variability. And if we could, if we can nudge that process, I think we have a chance of significantly improving. Uh, people's lives with deficits. Can you give an example then? How would how would you envision that? Uh, you know, I'd like to be better prepared for this uh, podcast, and mm -hmm. I have your instrument in my head, mm -hmm. on my head. What would you yeah. do, and what should I do? Yeah. So. In our model, the patient, there's an initial training process, which is uh, actually incredibly intensive, it takes several weeks. Um, but uh, after that training process, once, and again, this is where machine learning comes in, in order to, what that training process involves is <laughs> lots of list learning. Uh, uh, patients are remembering lots of lists. And we're, through those list learning studies, we're gathering brain sensing data from distributed areas of the brain, not only hippocampus, but neocortex, um, and using machine learning to identify those neural signatures that predict, or really it's predicting the brain states that allow patients to remember information. And what we find is those endogenous rhythms of the brain allow us to predict their performance. It actually allows us to predict with very high accuracy if a patient is going to remember the information that's being presented to them right now, it allows us to predict a minute later, two minutes later, whether they're going to remember the information in front of them. And that is does the that model. Generalize across tasks. Does it that does. generalize across it, it, it tasks? It generalizes across verbal memory tasks. We have not yet generalized it to spatial memory, but it generalizes from free recall of word lists to uh, free recall of categorized word lists, to paired associate learning, to cued recall. So free recall is A, B, C, D, E, F, G, uh, recall them in any order. Cued recall would be A, B, C, D, E, F, what went with A, what went with C, what went with F. You know, it, for those types of verbal learning, list learning studies, it does. These classifiers generalize across, and we've published on this, happy to provide references. Um, so once you've done that, then you can, you, you know, when, a, which brains, what the good brain states look like, what the bad brain states look like, bad, good. And you can nudge the brain when it's in these poor memory states. And like I said, it, if you nudge it in the right place at the right time, it makes the brain state look more like a good memory state, and you actually improve recall without any effort on behalf of the patient. And again, that's Eziat et al. 2018. Yes, but in that case, I think what has to happen is I have to interact with you because you know and I accept what I have to learn. And you look at you, you are looking at my or the patient's brain state and said, "Oh, let's nudge it because I'm going to present blue." And but that's uh, that's not exactly what I am interested in. I'd like to nudge my brain 
to those things that I want to attend to. That's fair. In our publication, we were synchronized to only the encoding periods. We've since replicated this to, um, again, I, I do believe our results only translate to verbal memory. But again, this is the type of memory that is most impaired in patients with memory loss, such as Alzheimer's and traumatic brain injury. It's verbal memory loss that is the issue that causes them to have to leave work, leave school after their injury. Uh, and so we believe we can improve verbal memory uh, through this training and nudging process. And it, it without any need for, uh, you know, there's a, a training process, which is an intensive and synchronized, but then when you release the patient at home, there's no further interactions that's required. It's continuously operating in the background, giving nudges. So I guess the challenge though will be whether this will translate to real world experiences that are complex and mixture of verbal exactly. and nonverbal information. True. And second, you know, whether, um, you know, there could be a place for, you know, as Uri, you mentioned, in, you know, uh, individual's preference, maybe, uh, you know, having the DBS system on or off in Parkinson's or something. I mean, but I, I don't know, that could be a, a future um, discussion, but uh, it would be ideal if it's, there is no interaction or, or need for the, the patient to do anything because then it's more likely to work, you know, I guess, continuously. But I, but I hear what you're saying, Yuri, in terms of, um, you know, patients may wanting to have an important event and, and really, um, you know, remember this graduation ceremony or birthday party, et cetera. But it sounds like Dan, from you're saying that would be, that would work in this kind of responsive way for this event, if the verbal memory results can translate to a complex real world scenario. Did I, I agree with that? that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But I mean, there's, a, this is a little, this is, touching upon a bunch of ethical issues that will need to be, you know, discussed if this really comes to fruition in terms of who is in control and, you know, what can be changed at, at, you know, in terms of the individual patient versus the clinician and how do you make these decisions and, yeah. I have a question from Jacob Robinson at Rice. I guess maybe my naive question would be, you know, when, when I think about like the, the science related to learning and memory, it often relies on technologies that are far more advanced than what we have available for human patients. And I'm curious, like, how do you resolve that gap, right? We have very limited ability to interact with the human brain in a clinical setting. We have, ex, you know, ex, increasingly expanding ability to do so in animals. Is that a bridge too far? And how, like, I would be concerned that the that the hype is going to be like, look at what we did in a mouse, and then people are going to expect that in person, and we're like, no, we are like decades. The technology lags by like thirty years. What we can do clinically versus what we can do in in, in, in research labs. Ooh, interesting question. I would I would disagree with that. As of as of twenty twenty one. I think that this last couple of <laughs> years, I mean, we just published a paper earlier this year that um, I in grad school would never uh, believe if you told me, you know, 20 years, years later that I could do this in a human. Um, and so I think that we are closer to bridging that gap. There's a lot to be done. I mean, I we just published a paper recording you know, intracranial oscillatory signals as a per person is walking around that yes, okay, people were doing this, you know, 30, 40 years ago in, in animal studies, 
But um, you know, this is just the beginning. And that that once because of all the animal studies, we have so much knowledge that I think when we get into a human in direct direct brain access, it's going to be much more accelerated. I mean, we can we can hopefully catch up quick because we have so much knowledge from animal studies. So um, you know, I would direct uh, to our recent nature paper in 2021. There's also a paper in Nature Biotech by the UCSF group uh, recording signals in, in naturally behaving Parkinson's patients. And like I said, 100,000 people could, could have these devices in the next five years. So um, that gap is going to be bridging, hopefully, very, very soon. <laughs> I think that gap is being bridged for multiple reasons. It's not just between the, the like science and tech gap. I think overall there's that lag time between animal studies and what can be done in humans is just decreasing, especially in neuroscience world. Partially it is due to the increasing acceptance of I'll call it bioelectronic medicine and implantables. Stuff like this moves through the pipeline faster. There's more standardization of uh, technology producers, whether that be in really like uh, kind of mundane things like hermetic sealing and something some that being a service you can just kind of pick up now versus like a really big in-house challenge like it was 20 years ago to manufacturing processes and miniaturization of computation that gives the clinicians or basically people developing these clinical products a lot more freedom in being able to kind of meet those demands or follow on what was happening in animal research. And so I think there are other factors at play that closes that gap besides just this scientific gap. But I think the second kind of point I would add to that is that a lot of people, when they look at this scientific gap in memory, I think they look at a lot of the single unit work that's been done, but so much of memory is about rhythms in the brain, right? And that technology has been around a lot longer in humans already. And so I think we're at a place where we can start just leveraging those more intelligently instead of having to maybe translate or overcome some of these hurdles related to a single unit tech or science. And can you tell us a little bit about what you're building now and how you're working to bridge this gap? Yeah, exactly. So I think earlier you asked a question about what area of research in memory excites me. It, it's network effects. It's kind of like uh, almost surprising if you look at the titles of memory papers that come out, they all focus on these like single target effects. And this is partially because of how science caters towards narrowing down that single variable, right? Stim the single target, see what happens. Stim the other single target, see what happens. But I think there's this really promising area of memory research that is about these kind of network interactions, multi-region interactions. And so that's the, um, that's the problem, or basically the approach that BrainGrade is taking is network effect interaction. So looking at the hippocampus and hippocampal assembly as you know, uh, we'll call it a theta wave generator or earlier I used the term endogenous amplifier and trying to connect that device to other uh, regions in the memory circuit and synchronizing those. That is our kind of primary approach. And so that is the area of uh, research that I find most exciting. I like that <laughs> uh, because it really explores uh, the mini part, what I call the, the good enough. You know, it will not be perfect, but it's then called it a, a nudge, but this will be a different kind of nudge. It will be a little elevator that uh, brings things a little bit to another level. So you, you complain about you know, single unit studies uh, and you said, oh, when I have 15 neurons, then I can tell where the animal is with, with a very high precision in the hippocampus. But if you have 50 electrodes in the hippocampus, which is recording nothing else, just a filtered LFP between five and 15 Hertz, and all you have 
is the amplitude and phase readout of those locations, you can tell better than with 50 neurons where the animal is. Exactly. <laughs> so for the practical reason, you know, the brain doesn't use brain LFP or brain waves or oscillations as such, because that's a derived signal. But for the experimenter, this is a much easier signal. For the first, for, if for nothing else, it's much easier to record it forever than, uh, than unit activity. And you can derive the same information. Now there are a couple of studies in humans with human MEG or, or even EEG, you can tell which direction the animal, not the animal, sorry, the human is looking at. So the head direction system, which is deep down somewhere, but, but with, from the phase distributions, you can read out and use it practically, even if you don't understand a thing about it. Nick, you, you mentioned studies looking at inter-aerial communication and in memory, and are there particular studies that you're looking at as inspirational in this regard? Yeah, so Nitin Tandon and Kamen Kim um, did network effect studies using intracranial electrodes in humans, uh, looking at uh, phase synchronization so when you're studying epilepsy patients, you don't always get to choose the targets that you're in, <laughs> which is one of the challenges of this type of research. But looking at theta phase synchronization between hippocampus and uh, signals that they're seeing in fornix, for example, I think I find that paper particularly interesting. <laughs> it was a small study, but I think it marries a lot of the theories that have existed in memory research uh, for a long time, and also explain some of the shortcomings or inconsistencies that we see in some single target approaches. And there's a lot for every paper that stimulates in hippocampus, for example, there's another paper that says that stimulating the hippocampus actually disrupts memory. And you have these kind of uh, tug of wars between scientists who seem to be doing a, a, a basically the same experiment, but aren't really able to resolve it. And I think this is where um, closed loop neurostimulation comes into. And I think that that alone would solve some of these issues, but especially on a network time scale, right? So I can see what uh, something to two regions down the chain is doing and stimulate into hippocampus to stimulate into entorhinal cortex at the appropriate time. Nancy, you mentioned some work that you did recently. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, it's all, I think, very similar in terms of the big overarching questions or, or you know, questions that we're trying to answer, um, you know, using electrical stimulation. We have been focusing on a different region. So another region in this big network, which is the enterrhinal perforant pathway, which is what we think we're targeting. It's the major in input uh, pathway to the hippocampus. So where all this sensory you know, multimodal information is, you know, coming in and, and focusing in to get sent to the hippocampus. Um, we have electrodes that are in this white matter area where we, where it's known that human perforant pathway fibers extend to the hippocampus. And we've shown in a couple studies now that that stimulation when provided during learning can result in improved memory. And it's been in multiple papers in different postdoc, postdocs hands. So I'm, I'm rather, um, you know, uh, convinced that this is a finding that uh, is consistent, you know, across these different studies. And, and we've done different types of lab-based tasks, like verbal memory that was mentioned, and also, um, you know, learning people's names, face, face name associative tasks, as well as um, some spatial navigation and 
some other you know object recognition task and it, and it seems to generalize in terms of improving memory there and and now my ultimate question though is how much does that translate to real world experiences so my lab has really uh, moved beyond those those lab-based tasks to try to do this in real behaving humans although it's much more challenging um, and you know in parallel trying to record the signals and use deep learning to see if we can uh, glean something from those signals that can tell us when when's an optimal time to respond um, we're also working in areas of you know memory impairments that are unwanted memories so in the case of post-traumatic stress disorder so we have a clinical trial to use responsive neurostimulation for PTSD. We're targeting you know, amygdala regions and, uh, and using a, a similar approach where we're trying to, to find the signal that can predict when the individual is, is being triggered. You know, Let's say they hear some fireworks during 4th of July, which is very triggering for a veteran population. Can the device you know, um, stimulate the, the network to suspend the behavioral outcome of that trigger? And so we're very excited. We have our first two patients this summer. Uh, and those are, those are some of the, the things that we're working on now. What do we think a, a natural sequence of BCI products might look like over the next 10 years with regard to memory? Do we see that there are some kind of low hanging fruit, some more ambitious projects? If we wanted to look a little bit more near term, what, what do you think people have to look forward to? What's the first BCI product that, that hits the market? So I think utilizing existing technologies, we're talking LFPs, sensing the, a, a memory prosthetic with the ability to sense local field potentials and stimulate using macro stimulation. Uh, I mean, these are proven technologies that don't need, you know, with, with longevity proven out decades, you don't need you know, to develop anything new to get a device that can work for decades using sensing LFPs and stimulating macroelectrodes. That's, so, it's there. So, and, and we know how to, and now we have proof of concept about how to use these two tools to nudge the brain and improve memory. I think that's the first step. Uh, looking further down the line, we're talking about expanding that to additional brain regions I mean, right now, the, the most complex brain stimulator has two leads in the brain, you know, these Medtronic DBS devices or the Neuropace devices, they have two leads. Uh, we ultimately want to get out to larger numbers of leads, targeting larger numbers of brain regions, and potentially getting more precise in terms of the local fields. I don't think we need to go down to uh, single units. Maybe I could be wrong. I doubt it. I think that level of resolution, at, while incredibly useful for neuroscientists, is not necessary for a memory prosthetic. But you know, what is the optimal size of the LFP? What is the optimal size of a stimulating electrode uh, in order to facilitate memory performance? We don't yet know. Well, I, I don't have a company. So I can say whatever I want, <laughs> but uh, the, the, I would ask the question differently, whether you are talking about invasive or non-invasive, you are talking about the, the, the white public or you are talking about patients. And I think we have to look at first the patients so because these are the ones who really need to come back to where most of us are rather than uh, 
creating super guys or girls who can uh, you know, outperform the average population. So in that case, we know that in epileptic patients and in Alzheimer patients, the biggest, well, one of the biggest problem is the intellectual spikes. You know, the seizures come every month, every two weeks, uh, rarely more often, but intellectual spikes can be many, 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 and they hijack the pathways that are needed for, for making memories. And the, I don't know what we can do with closed loop stimulation or closed loop intervention with, with spikes because they are so short. But the consequences are devastating because every single hippocampal intellectual spike produces a long lasting down state, at least in the prefrontal cortex. But that is long time, you know, in the millisecond range where we can think how those unwanted down states can be brought back. Uh, so any device that can, uh, can change that, hopefully, will do nothing else, just bring the, back the physiological level and then it leaves it to the rest of the brain to do something. Amazingly, you know, we have done several experiments in the past and recently, you can switch off the hippocampus completely for a couple of theta cycles and it comes back in one single theta cycle to the exact state where it was before. So indeed, any short interference that can nudge, I forget what the other word, word was, you know, you can, you can uh, manipulate the state of the target area and let it go back to how it would do under normal physiological conditions would be a low hanging fruit and would lead to some memory improvement. Nanthia, Nick, do you have any thoughts about what kind of products we might see in the next 10 years? Is it cheating to just talk yeah. about my own products? <laughs> <laughs> no, that seems reasonable. Please do. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Dan that the, the first products, and it's, I think it's a little bit odd to call them the first products onto the market, because I think what these are is next-gen devices of existing deep brain stimulators. And I, what we're looking at is improvements to those, uh, whether that be in adding sensing capabilities or adding multi-region capabilities or increasing the number of LFP sensing electrodes that you have in hippocampus. <laughs> um, all of these things are improvements on existing designs. And so I think that's what the product's gonna look like um, in the next period. And we're, we're gonna see other improvements alongside those, right? There's gonna be additional miniaturization. We're already seeing incredibly longer battery lives. Um, 25 years was the most recent mark that I saw for a DBS device, which is very impressive. But I think ultimately, uh, when we talk about BCI for memory, what we're going to see is, is devices that are capable of interacting with more of the circuit. Because I think that's been the limitation on existing DBS devices. If somebody could pull off uh, a, a Boston Scientific device or a Medtronic device and just stick it into hippocampus or internal cortex and get uh, the exact improvements they wanted, um, then Dan and I wouldn't be building what we're building. And we already see that in companies like functional neuromodulation, which uh, haven't done as well for these targets. So I guess, yeah, what I foresee is the next generation of things that are here. Yeah, and um, you know, I'd say similar, similar response uh, at UCLA. You know, we have a collaborator here, engineer Dan Markovich, who was funded by the DARPA program to develop you know, a higher channel, better sensing neurostimulation closed loop device. And, 
you know, we have a prototype now that uh, we actually are testing a version bedside with the epilepsy patients and recorded, you know, LFP single neuron activity with a tiny little miniaturized device, you know, that uh, these other systems we use like BlackRock, you know, can do. And so I think as these technologies get um, miniaturized and integrated, we may see, you know, better, better devices. But I agree with Dan that in the short term, you know, likely be existing devices that are already FDA approved that are good enough to go forward and, and provide some improvement in the quality of life. And then as that uh, hopefully progresses and shows some positive effects, we can, you know, start putting these new devices through the regulatory system uh, so that we can, you know, upgrade at a certain point and do better and, and optimize it further. My last question, when this podcast goes out to the millions and millions of listeners that listen to Neurotech Pub, what would you want to ask the world for? What do you think could, you know, whether it's a technological improvement or some change in the way that regulators work or improvement in data science or, you know, someone to test a specific biological hypothesis, what do you think would move this field forward? In other words, Nectars. are we tech limited? Are we science limited? <laughs> what is it, Dan? What was that, Dan? Connectors. Connectors. <laughs> right? The ability to connect, you know, large numbers of electrodes to a can or an implantable pulse generator uh, that's in the brain or in the chest, uh, that's restricted by our, by the running fine wires between those electrodes and the can, the pulse generator, uh, the implant. Um, and connectors are holding us back. We're, there's one connector company right now, which is called Ball Seal. Uh, and you can't stack more than eight ball seals in a linear array, which means you can't have more than eight electrodes on a given lead. And, you know, I think ultimately, Matt, I think you're already going to multiplexing, which is probably the ultimate solution. Um, but in the, you know, for uh, for companies that don't have, you know, th there isn't a commercial multiplexing solution out. And so that could be, you know, fair, fair enough. Multiplexing could be part of the solution, but it's how you connect large numbers of electrodes to the, the electronics for processing the data. And those connectors could be wireless, right? Like a drastic improvement in wireless technology. would also Could be. That, that's right. Wireless connectors. Yep. We had um, Vanessa Tolosa on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, and I think she said the word connectors about 20 times. I think yeah. it's on a lot of people's Lures. wish list. No, definitely. I mean, connectors would be a definite pick of mine. I mean, if we're talking about for this field in general, too, there's certain problems that are hard to solve without funding. And, and by this, I mean funding for... I'll call them risk-taking products. I think so many companies die at the starting line just because they can't make that jump. Um, we, we hear about the valley of death and, and fundraising a lot. And I, I guess the kind of specific situation I'm referring to is, is kind of what we're looking at now, right? There, there's only so much research you can do in a human kind of, I'll call it preclinical human work. So you're in humans, but before you actually have a product that's meant to be under clinical trial investigation, for example, um, there's only so much work you can do there before you eventually have to build something for your target population that's catered to them. Right. And to bridge that gap, to build that thing, that, that funding is missing. And so I think 
yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm another entrepreneur talking about um, more funding needed. <laughs> but You're right. Yeah. <laughs> I will also extend that funding request to funds to develop training programs to, to, to train the next generation of individuals we need in this field, which is actually a big challenge. You know, this neuroengineering, neurotechnology field where you're, we you have somebody who knows the language of these very different fields of engineering, neuroscience, medicine, clinical industry, right? It's so many different things, so many different hats, and it takes a very, you know, unique uh, person to be able to really merge all of those. And, uh, and I'm not sure, you know, as a neuroscience community, we're doing as well as we could in training these, you know, future generation of neuro neurotechnologists that can span basic science to industry. Um, and so, you know, I, I at UCLA, we ha I have a T32 for this translational neurotechnology, which is trying to do this, but it's like one little piece of what really is needed, which is really just a, a better way to train these students who are coming from all these different fields and and really train them specifically in this application of you know developing and applying and translating neurotechnology for neuroscience and bedside to clinic you know bench to bedside is what we say right from basic science to clinic that's that's what we need the history of humankind is uh, the history of externalization of brain function and that's typically memory Whenever you make an artifact that lasts forever, it outlives you. So that is extremely helpful. And of course, the technology since uh, Gutenberg and the invention of words and even verbal communication changed a lot. So we've got tons and tons and tons and tons of, of improvement when it comes to access information. And the reason why it is so exciting and interesting is that there is no other species like us where the share of humankind's knowledge or the, or the species knowledge is so little in the individuals. My share of humankind's knowledge is ridiculously small. Now, how? so what I would ask from the large audience out there, the millions and millions of people who are li listening to this program, is that what is the need? Is it good enough? Just make it faster so I can have access to everybody else's knowledge faster or more effectively or should i concentrate or should we assign this concentrate rate on gadgets that allow outperform everybody else and i will get a uh, advantage over others who cannot pay it and i can make my memory better by implanting things and what other cost you accept for that because we know that there are people out with big memory. There are people out there since ancient times who can memorize all speeches of Cicero. There are people who can cannot forget anything, but none of those survive very well in society. So we have to be prepared, and this is what you might be asking from them, that what happens if you learn a lot of things, but including all those bad emotional memories that there is no choice for you to select. Or another level of com communication could be with the public is that whom should we help first? Uh, what is the low hanging fruit? We are scientists so good, neuroscientists are so good making the brain worse and breaking things. And 
can we utilize that? In fact, many of the stimulation studies, both from UCLA as well as from University of Pennsylvania, show that it's so much easier to make things disappear or not to remember than to recall something. Maybe PTSD would be a good target. We said, okay, we, we have many ways to show how to forget it, how to access those memories online and do a cold closed loop loop system that allows me to remember something or when I spontaneously remember something, I just push a button and said erase. This would be my vote <laughs> uh, <laughs> as a first, you know, 10 year program, program. <laughs> uh, rather than enhancing my memory, which I know it is deteriorating, but you know, I have enough help from here and uh, I try to go. Thank you all for taking the time with me. I, I think the audience is really going to like this discussion. I certainly did. Thanks, Thanks for inviting us. I enjoyed very much talking yeah. to you guys, and I wish you good luck with your companies. <laughs> Thank you, Yuri. Thank you. Good to talk to you. So I can buy products, so I, I could be a good beta site. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye, Nantia. Bye. See you, Nick. See you. Bye.